Hi, this is Herb Kressel, editor of Radiology. Welcome to the July 2011 Radiology podcast. This month we'll be featuring three articles. First, my colleague Deborah Levine, senior deputy editor of Radiology, will be speaking with Megan Brennan about an article entitled Meta-Analysis of Ductal Carcinoma in Situ on Core Needle Biopsy underestimation and predictors of invasive cancer. Next, I will be speaking with Elvira Lang about her manuscript entitled Distress in the Radiology Waiting Room. And finally, Dr. David Kalmas, Deputy Editor for Neuroradiology, will be speaking with uh, Dr. William Kerwin on uh, their interesting article on the effect of intensive lipid therapy on the vasovasorum uh, evaluation using dynamic contrast-enhanced MRI in carotid atherosclerosis. Uh, we think that all of these uh, manuscripts are quite thought-provoking and hope that you will enjoy the discussions. Hi, this is Debbie Levine. I'm the Senior Deputy Editor at Radiology, and I'm talking today with Dr. Megan Brennan, who did a meta-analysis that was entitled Meta-Analysis of Ductal Carcinoma in Situ on Core Needle Biopsy, Underestimation and Predictors of Invasive Breast Cancer, that's going to be in the July issue of Radiology. Dr. Brennan is a clinical senior lecturer at Sydney Medical School, and um, we're thrilled to have you with us. Thank you very much. So can you tell us about your study? Yeah, the, the study that we did was really to answer the question, what proportion of core biopsies showing DCIS are actually confirmed to be DCIS when the lesion's excised versus the proportion that show DCIS on a core biopsy but on excision turn out to be invasive malignancy. So we wanted to have a look at the published literature and find out what the studies have shown and, uh, and do that. The other thing we were very interested in is whether there were any variables we could identify preoperatively that may indicate that this is a lesion more likely to show invasive cancer when it's excised. Because clearly the management of DCIS and invasive cancer is different. So the more information, the more accurate information we can have preoperatively, the, the better for patient care. So we found when we did our literature search, there were 52 studies that met our inclusion criteria, which were uh, studies showing core biopsy of DCIS with a reference standard of excision histology. And this represented about 7,000 core biopsies and there were about 1,700 underestimates. So we found overall the pooled estimate was about 26% of the biopsies showing in DCIS on a core would show um, invasion on the final histology. And like you said, you found 52 studies on this topic. Why did you think it was important to perform the meta-analysis? Well, in the past, there have been obviously a lot of studies looking at this question and, and looking at this area of, of underestimation. Most of the studies were focusing on one particular area, so one particular variable sometimes. The histology of the core biopsy, for example, looking at whether it was 
you know, whether there was any comedonecrosis on the core biopsy or whether you know, what the grade of the lesion on the core biopsy was. Other studies were focusing more on the imaging details, like whether there was microcalcification or whether there was a mass and then the size of the lesion on the imaging. So, because all the studies are looking at things, slightly different variables, we wanted to, to see how all of these compare and, you know, get an overall picture. So, did you um, find out anything that surprised you or was everything pretty much expected? I think we we did confirm what a lot of other studies have shown. Probably the most important factor seems to be size. The surprise was how small a size was significant. We found lesions over 20 millimetres uh, had a higher risk of invasion as opposed to, to lesions under 20 millimetres. Previous studies have consistently shown that larger lesions, for example, 50 millimetres and over would have a higher risk, but we were surprised by how low and how small lesions were, um, were possibly underestimates. The other interesting thing that, that came out of it, and, and we still, I guess, don't have all the answers, but we found that lesions that were biopsied under ultrasound guidance had a higher risk of underestimation versus those that were biopsied under stereotactic guidance. Getting to one of the things you were just saying with that 20 millimeter or I guess two centimeter threshold, having maybe mm. twice the um, risk of having mm. invasion, um, you actually suggested that maybe if women had lesions of this size, that surgeons could go directly to a sentinel lymph node biopsy at the time of surgery to avoid a second potential procedure. Do you really foresee this happening? Look, I think the, the evidence that we've shown is that there are a number of variables that were significant. And if a woman, for example, had all of, all of those risk factors, so it was, it was a larger lesion and it did look like a high-grade lesion and it was palpable and symptomatic, which were other significant factors, then certainly it would be an option to discuss that preoperatively. I wouldn't necessarily say if size was the only risk factor and she didn't have any of those others that, that it would be necessary. But um, at least we have some, some information to guide that sort of discussion. Mm -hmm. And given your results when you compared needle size, the 11 gauge versus the 14 gauge needle, is there any reason nowadays to use the 14 gauge needles for biopsies? Certainly the 11 gauge needles give bigger samples and that's probably why the underestimation rate was higher, higher with the smaller needle and lower risk of underestimation with the larger 11 gauge needle. And that was sort of roughly 20% versus roughly 30% underestimation. That is confounded a little bit by the fact that most of the biopsies we found, the stereotactic ones were generally done with the 11 gauge needles and the ultrasound ones generally were done with the 14 gauge needles. So we've had a lot of difficulty sorting out what's the significance of the, you know, the, the imaging modality and the lesion itself that's biopsied with that needle versus the actual needle and the technique itself. Terrific, thank you. So supposing you have a patient who had a breast biopsy result that came back DCIS, 
Would you give her a range of underestimation of invasive cancer or would you give her that 25% value or some other number? Yeah, I think we can we can say to her in general, if you took all women with this diagnosis, we'd be saying it's around about 25%, but we can also be a lot more specific in her case, looking at the way she presented and whether this is a symptomatic palpable lesion versus an asymptomatic screen detected lesion and all of those biopsy variables and also you know how big we think it is, what, what the size is. So we can, we can look at how many of those sort of high-risk features she's got versus how many low-risk features, and that may indicate whether she's more likely to be you know, above the 25% or below. So that brings up my next question. So thank you for, for putting it that way, because we're talking about kind of underestimation of invasive cancer. But one of the big problems with DCIS and screening is, of course, that a lot of these women with DCIS have lesions that many people feel are, are clinically unimportant. And so can we use any of this information to downgrade patients' risks? I think that's a difficult question, and, and it's this study again has shown all of the the things we don't know about DCIS. There have been some proposals recently to 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 try to avoid over treating women with DCIS and then perhaps you know doing less surgery or or even observing them rather than than operating. And I think what we've found is that regardless of all of these variables, there is a significant risk that it's an invasive, in fact, an invasive cancer. You know, I don't think we've ever found, we, we haven't really got any evidence of any lesions that would be safe to observe, for example, and not to excise. Great, thank you. And then I just have one last question, and it gets to what you were saying about needle size and modality. How about when we talk about lesion size and palpability, and also getting into um, going from having a mass to just having calcifications. Because doesn't it seem like some of those are more dependent variables than independent variables and it's hard to consider them alone? It is difficult and because of the heterogeneity that we found in the studies, we, we weren't able to do a multivariate analysis. So all we've, we've done is look at these variables independently and there were statistical reasons why it wasn't valid to sort of pull them all together and see which is the most important. So all we can really do is look at things individually and try to get an idea based on that to get a feel for whether you know we're on the higher risk of, of underestimation versus the, the lower side. Thank you so much. Um, terrific. Well, this was great. Hi, today I'm joined by Dr. Elvira Lang, who is president and CEO of Hypnalgesics and associate professor of radiology at the Beth Israel Deaconess uh, Medical Center, Department of Radiology and Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Lang. Hello. Hi. Well, we're going to be talking about uh, the article that uh, Dr. Florian you wrote on distress in the radiology waiting room. And uh, I think most of our readers don't consider uh, the waiting rooms to be a place of great distress. So tell us about your study. Uh, why did you decide to do this study? Well, we had done some earlier work and we had 
found out that people who are very anxious when they walk in the door, that they tend to have more pain during procedures and need more medications. And also it takes longer whatever they will be having in the radiology department. So we got very fascinated to see what drives their distress. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the study. What did you do and, and what did you find? Well, we wanted to see uh, what we as healthcare providers think is actually also how the patients experience it. And often we say a procedure is minor or major based on how many bad things can happen physically to the patient. So we thought, is there a difference in whether it's a diagnostic test or whether patients come for invasive treatment of benign disease or for malignant disease. And um, we were lucky we had done some prior prospective randomized studies on looking at how we can improve the patient experience during procedures. And all these patients had filled out questionnaires before. And so we had a group of women who had breast biopsies. Then we had a group of patients who came for embolization of liver cancers as a model of malignant disease invasive therapy where you may have high risk and possibly even fatalities of treatment and embolization of benign fibroids where women have a high level of sufferance and symptoms and also get a post-embolization syndrome. And so we compared how these women in these different groups were feeling about their upcoming exam. And what did you find? How did, did they feel differently? Yeah, they did. And what we were really amazed about is how stressed these patients are in the waiting room. Uh, for example, we looked at the, um, at the anxiety levels using um, the Spielberger Trait Anxiety Inventory, and pretty much the women who were waiting for the breast biopsies were way significantly more anxious than the patients having chemoembolizations or fibroid embolizations, nearly twice as high scores. Then we looked at a scale that's called impact of events, asking how much the week before the patients had thoughts of the upcoming procedure intruding their thoughts or how many thoughts of avoidance they had. And also there we found some pretty high values for all the three patient groups. If you look at what psychologists consider normal, the upper cutoff would be let's say 19, the scale goes up to 75, and the breast biopsy patients were around 26, the chemoembolization patients around 23, and the fibroid patients also around 23. Mm -hmm. So pretty high impact of events. And I was pretty surprised at that because I thought if you have to go for a procedure where you have to stay in the hospital overnight that has just a lot of invasiveness, you would be more impaired in thinking about it than 
an outpatient breast biopsy, but that was not the case. Mm-hmm. Then we looked at levels of depression on the Center for Epidemiologic Studies depression scale, and that tests feelings of depression or guilt, worthlessness, helplessness, and also checks questions of well-being. And on that scale, the maximum of depressed symptoms one can have is 60, and clinical depression is considered anything 16 and above. And the breast biopsy patient came up to 15, pretty high, just like the chemoembryo patients came to 14 and the fibroid patients to 12. So pretty amazing level of depression, but no difference among the groups. Uh, Elvira, I uh, noted that obviously you're dealing with uh, uh, patients for a breast biopsy. There were no men in any of the arms of the study. Uh, do you think men are different in terms of the anxiety that they have and the source of it in this case? Men typically are a bit less anxious, but the effect of uncertainty of diagnosis that has been shown in men there was a study on men with prostate biopsies, and there was the same finding that they were much more stressed before and also while waiting for the results of the biopsy than even being told that they have a malignant cancer. Mm-hmm. And that's, by the way, another finding we had from another study that we published in radiology after women have the biopsy and then still don't know what it is, even hormonally as stressed out as women who've just been told they got a cancer. So uncertainty is, it's a very stressful situation. So how should the readers use this information? Are there any interventions that are helpful? You, You mentioned that sort of these high levels of anxiety are associated with more pain during the procedure, longer procedures, the need for more analgesia. So are there things that we can do to help mitigate the situation? Yeah, I think two things. Number one, to just acknowledge that there is no such thing as just a diagnostic test. And also to prepare the personnel in the radiology environment to deal with the anxieties. And we've actually gone over now training teams in how they can address the patient's fears, anxiety, and pain by just the way they talk to patients. We we call it now comfort talk. Mm -hmm. Do that in a way that doesn't require any extra time. I see. And is there evidence that this actually will result in a reduction of anxiety and a reduction of pain? Well, we have done studies that showed that if you provide that to patients in procedures, they have less pain, less anxiety, and also fewer complications. And in the MR environment, where it's mainly anxiety, we did find and published with one team here at the North Shore of Boston, where they were able to cut down their claustrophobia rate by 40%. For MRI? For MRI, yes. I understand. Well, thank you. This is very, very interesting. 
and very, very important. I want to thank you very much for joining us, uh, and thanks again for this uh, fascinating article. And thanks so much for having me. Sure. Hello, my name is David Kalmus. I am the Deputy Editor for Neuroradiology. Today I'm joined by Williams S. Kerwin. He is Research Associate Professor of Radiology and the Associate Director for the Vascular Imaging Lab at the University of Washington. He and I are going to be discussing his recent paper, Carotid Artery Atherosclerosis, Effective Intensive Lipid Therapy on the Vasovazora Evaluation Using Dynamic Contrast Enhanced MR Imaging. Dr. Kerwin, welcome. Oh, thank you. I think we should start maybe by uh, having you offer just a brief summary of, of uh, your paper. Okay, so in this paper we were uh, fortunate to be teamed up with uh, Zhu Chao Zhao from the Division of Cardiology here who is conducting a long-term study called the Carotid Plaque Composition Study, or CPC study, which is a three-year follow-up of three different treatment approaches that are aiming at greatly reducing uh, low-density cholesterol levels and increasing high-density lipid levels. And what we're reporting is the results of a sub-study that is looking at changes in the microvascular environment of these patients over the course of just one year. And we use a technique called dynamic contrast enhanced MRI to measure a parameter called K-trans, which is related to the blood supply and the permeability of that blood supply. And our thought was because uh, lipid lowering therapy is thought to have an anti-inflammatory effect that we would see changes in this microvascular environment uh, with dynamic contrast enhanced MRI. And so when we looked at patients that were eligible for our sub-study, we did indeed find that their levels of K-trans dropped uh, significantly over the course of the first year. And we take this to show that both this purported effect of being anti-inflammatory and, and hence re altering the microvascular environment of the plaque is, is one of the effects of lipid-lowering therapy, and that also this dynamic contrast-enhanced MRI technique, which is uh, an experimental technique, is viable for doing a study such as this. Now, it, it sounds fairly early on. Are there any other studies that have correlated changes in K-trans with the modulation of stroke risk? At this point, no. Our lab is, is one of a handful of labs worldwide that um, is, is using this technique in uh, atherosclerosis, and we've been able to correlate it with histological findings, and including a paper that we uh, published in radiology in, in 2006 which is, I think, citation number 11 in the paper. And, and what about the other, I guess, better well-known parameters of the complicated plaque on MR? How does K-trans relate to that, and why did you choose to focus on K-trans alone? Okay, well, the goal of the larger CPC study is actually to look at what are becoming the more well-known uh, aspects of, of plaque characteristics related to stroke risk, such as the size of the lipid-rich necrotic core and, and other morphological features of the plaque. And, and we did look in our sub-study group uh, at those parameters as well, and we found that the, the therapy does reduce the uh, amount of lipid in the plaque, which has been uh, reported in similar studies looking at lipid-lowering agents. Uh, the uniqueness of this study was really to say that in addition and, and uncorrelated with those changes in, in lipid core size, uh, we see uh, an alteration of the, the microvascular permeability and or total content. Mm -hmm. 
if we could maybe talk a little bit more detail about your, your paper itself, I, I want to focus a little bit on one of your figures, actually figure three, where you where you plot at the adventitial K-trans at baseline versus year one, and uh, you're very kind to give us actual individual patient data there. And I'm noticing that many of the patients had no change year to year um, from baseline to year one in their K-trans. A subset seemed to have a profound drop. Can you uh, shed any light onto, onto uh, what we may be seeing in that aspect of your data? Okay, and uh, here I can only be very uh, speculative, but this particular study, as I said, is looking at three different treatment arms, all of which uh, include a torvastatin, two of which include niacin, which the niacin is going to raise HDL and, and possibly have an anti-inflammatory effect. Uh, at present, because the master study is still ongoing, we remain blinded to which group um, each of the subjects belong in, so we had to do just a combined analysis and our hope is that we will see a difference in response based on what treatment the different subjects are on. Uh, and that might be what we're seeing in, in figure three. But, so you uh, may be able to tease out an, a, a, an independent uh, effect of HDL as opposed to LDL given the niacin subgroups? Exactly. I don't know if you saw in the New York Times this morning, it was actually above the fold on the front page, uh, a study showing that uh, raising HDL did not have impact on outcomes in a large federally funded study. I guess that just speaks to the fact of how a dynamic a field this is and, and how much we're all learning so quickly. Okay, well, it'll be interesting to see what, what we find in our study. Sure. Can you uh, discuss maybe what comes next, either in your focus line of research or from the, the larger study that you're involved in? Well, I think we are looking to further extend um, in our research this dynamic contrast-enhanced technique um, both by making the, the imaging and analysis methods more robust. One of the weaknesses of this study for us that we acknowledge in the paper is that at present we're only able to analyze fairly large lesions. So of the uh, more than 120 eligible subjects in this study, we were only able to identify 31 who had a significantly large enough lesion to analyze. And what we're trying to do is, is push the limits of this technique to look at earlier and earlier lesions um, that we think are going to be most important for uh, therapeutic response. I think a second um, aspect is that this technique is, is fairly noisy, um, and we found that uh, measurements in an individual are not particularly meaningful and tend to vary uh, about 20% of the patient-to-patient of -patient variation. So trying to say something clinically meaningful about an individual patient based on this technique is, is rather difficult at this point. So um, I think if we can look to more methods that have better, better signal-to-noise ratios and improved uh, imaging and analysis methods, that we might be able to get to the point where this technique could be used clinically as a, as a risk indicator, um, not just as a, a surrogate endpoint for a, a clinical trial as it was used here. Mm -hmm. Now, Washington has vast experience and expertise in ultrasound imaging as well. Is this is imaging of flow to the plaque something that could be done with ultrasound as a complement to the MR, or is that uh, not something you've uh, looked at? We have not looked at that ourselves. I'm, I'm very much aware that uh, ultrasound has contrast-enhanced techniques that have detected uh, microvasculature in uh, atherosclerotic plaques in a similar manner and, and speculate in the paper that those techniques could be applied in a similar manner and, and produce similar findings, but I don't have any direct experience. 
Well, the research you're doing is not easy. <laughs> um, prospective trials with low event rates clinically are difficult to do, and I think you're, you're uh, taking a very logical uh, approach to this to try to find surrogate markers that you can find significant differences in relatively small pools of patients. Well, I want to, uh, to thank you, Dr. Kerwin, for joining us today. I hope that our discussion will be illuminating to, to our readers, and we look forward to more excellent papers from your group in the future. Well, thank you very much for uh, allowing me to discuss this paper.